0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Addressing Therapeutic Inertia and Basal Insulin Use in Type 2 Diabetes, sponsored by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated. This session was originally presented and recorded at the Practical Updates in Primary Care virtual meeting. I'd like to introduce your presenters, Dr. Angela Thompson and Dr. Richard Rosenthal, Dr. Thompson is a family nurse practitioner and certified diabetes educator. Her current clinical practice is within a hospital-based endocrine clinic at Hendricks Regional Health in Danville, Indiana. Dr. Rosenthal is an endocrinologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. He's an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism. Additionally, he serves as the Associate Chief Medical Officer of Ambulatory Services. Please enjoy, and thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, and welcome to our presentation this morning entitled Addressing Therapeutic Inertia and Basal Insulin Use in Type 2 Diabetes. My name is Dr. Richard Rosenthal, and I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I will be joined today by Dr. Angela Thompson, a nurse practitioner who practices at Hendricks Endocrinology in Pittsburgh, Indiana, and she'll join us for the second half of our uh, presentation. Uh, I have nothing to disclose uh, in relation to this presentation and Dr. Thompson has nothing to disclose in relation to uh, this presentation as well. Our learning objectives today are to describe the impact of therapeutic inertia, barriers to treatment intensification, and strategies for early treatment intensification. The second uh, learning objective is to outline the pharmacodynamic and pharmacodynamic and clinical differences among basal insulin analogs. And lastly, to incorporate type 2 diabetes regimens using appropriate initiation and dosing of basal insulin analogs based on clinical guidelines, individual glycemic goals, and patient preferences through interactive case studies that we'll do toward the end. In regards to diabetes, you see across the, the country that the prevalence of diabetes is grown enormously. If you look on the far left of the screen in 2004, the prevalence of diabetes was more in the three to five or six percent range. And as we've progressed through the last two decades, there's been an explosion not only in the diagnosis of diabetes, but also the determination of patients who have impaired glucose tolerance who may go on to develop a diabetes. Diabetes in the United States is, is very prevalent, as you see. 37 million people have diabetes. That's about one in every 10 people uh, in the United States. One in five of those people don't even know they have diabetes. And that's where it's our job as clinicians to make the determination, do they have diabetes, and follow the standards set by various societies to make the diagnosis of diabetes with fasting glucose or even hemoglobin A1C. Prediabetes is also very common. In fact, one in three uh, Americans have prediabetes. Now, that means that they do not have diabetes at that time, but they may go on to progress to developing diabetes mellitus. And that encompasses about 96 million people. The other issue is about four and five or eight and 10, however you wanna look at it, don't even know they have diabetes. So as providers, we need to make clinical decisions and testing our patients and getting them on proper therapy. The problems with diabetes not only involve determining if they have an elevated blood glucose, but we also want to work very aggressively to get these blood glucoses down so they did not go on to develop some of the complications of diabetes that we'll discuss a little bit later. The amazing thing about diabetes is that the cost is enormous. Medical costs for diabetes patients are about twice as high as that for patients that do not have diabetes. And you see the figure on your screen approaches uh, $327 billion. This is a very interesting uh, uh, trend graph here, looking at patients who have total diabetes, which is basically those who have diagnosed diabetes and undiagnosed diabetes. The way this was determined was they asked patients if they, ever de- if they were ever told they had diabetes. Those would naturally be your diagnosed diabetes. The uh, undiagnosed diabetes were patients who were never told they had diabetes mellitus. However, they had a fasting glucose of over 126 milligrams per deciliter or they had an a1c of 6.5 and from 1999 to 2000 up into 2000 2015 the prevalence of total diabetes has increased from about 9 to 12 percent and the prevalence of diagnosed diabetes as you see in the middle curve here has increased from 6.2 to 10 percent where basically your undiagnosed diabetes was relatively flat so diagnosing diabetes has been a very common practice and i think as providers we've done a a lot better job in the last uh, one to two decades Uh, As said in another way, on the National Diabetes Statistic Report from 2017 uh, to 2020, 37.3 million people in the United States have diabetes. That's about 11.3% of the population. About 28.7 million are diagnosed and about 8.5 undiagnosed. These are type 2 diabetes that we're thinking about here. Type one diabetes has remained relatively flat, uh, 1.9 million people with diabetes. And as I mentioned on the previous slide, 96 million people have pre-diabetes, that's about 38% of the adult population. So we have a lot of work to do to improve these patients, not only with diet and exercise, which can be very helpful as shown in the diabetes prevention program, uh, but also getting patients on proper medications and trying to get their A1Cs to goal. What is the clinical impact of diabetes? It's the major cause of premature death and disability in the United States. It's the leading cause of new cases of blindness in working age adults. That's why we encourage our patients who have pre-diabetes to see their eye doctor every one or two years. Uh, 50% of the non-traumatic lower extremity amputations are related to diabetes. And 35% of new cases of end-stage renal disease uh, are related to diabetes mellitus. And lastly, there's a two to four-fold increase in cardiovascular risk. In fact, patients who have diabetes who have not had a, a diagnosed coronary event are at the same risk of having another or having their first coronary event as a patient who has established coronary disease who has already had a problem with an event. So we really look at patients with diabetes as having a coronary equivalent. Uh, said in another way, 82,000 amputations are performed each year because of diabetes mellitus. About 12 to 24,000 people are felt to lose their eyesight for diabetes. You see the large number of patients with end-stage renal disease, and 280,000 people die from diabetes and its complications each year, and that's increasing. Why do we try to get our patients in good control? This is an older study from the United Kingdom Perspective Diabetes Study that was put out in the BMJ in 2000, and it looked at at how we do in lowering patients' A1Cs. And what we we see in our patients, and what I encourage my patients to do, is to get that A1C down. If you have a patient in your clinic and their A1C is nine, and you can get them from nine to eight, they're going to have a 37% reduction in in their risk for microvascular complications, whether it be retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. Uh, The risk for uh, stroke uh, down 12%, decreased risk of MI was statistically significant with a reduction in 14%, and a statistically significant reduction in in any diabetes-related endpoint by 21%. So clearly, Improving blood glucose is adding in medications has been very important. When you think about diabetic retinopathy, it's frequently present at the diagnosis of diabetes uh, type 2, and that's why we send our patients to see an ophthalmologist right away. On the other side, a patient with type 1 diabetes, we're not as concerned about them at the time of their diagnosis. They really haven't started to develop the, uh, the outcomes or the complications related to diabetes. Diabetic retinopathy can prevent, uh, can progress and lead to several problems, including microaneurysms, retinal hemorrhages, uh, uh, severe uh, diabetic proliferative retinopathy, and it also may lead to macular edema. And when we're managing these patients, not only do we need to get their blood sugar in good control, we need to get their blood pressure as well as their cholesterol levels to where they need to be. Some of these patients may require laser treatment. They may require photocoagulation. And as you're aware, the cost of diabetic retinopathy is enormous. Diabetic neuropathy is another condition that we don't want to hold lightly. In fact, when I see patients in my clinic, I have a sign on the back of the door to make sure they always take their, their uh, shoes and socks off so we can examine their feet, make sure that their nail care is good, make sure that their pulses are intact, that there's no infections, uh, that they may, be, uh, n- may need to be a candidate for diabetic shoes. And in, in diabetic peripheral neuropathy is one of the most prevalent of the distal polyneuropathies. It affects up to about 50% of patients with diabetes, Not all the patients have symptoms, but some of them will have numbness and tingling, and we can use our tuning fork. uh, We can use our our light touch to see where they stand in regards to neuropathy, and it really can have an effect on their quality of life, and that's why it's important to address diabetic peripheral neuropathy. One of the things that, uh, that Dr. Thompson will talk on as we progress through the program in the second half of this is the importance of trying to get better glycemic control. This study out of the uh, American Diabetes Association showed that about 50.2% of providers failed to get patients to their A1C goal. And the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists showed in a study that uh, basically two-thirds of patients were not getting to goal. And as providers, we're not adding in medications. I think in the last five to 10 years, with with the advent of uh, easier-to-use insulins and more oral agents, we're starting to use double and triple therapy. But as providers, we need to think about trying to get our patients in better control and help prevent some of these microvascular complications. When we delay a patient in treating them appropriately, uh, there is a significant uh, increase in, in problems in regards to the cardiovascular system, as you see here, MI by 67%, stroke by 51%, heart failure by 64%, and their composite by up to 62%. This is a very nice uh, slide or supplement that was in the recent diabetes care. And at the end of each year, these guidelines of how we treat our patient are something that you should refer to. In this presentation, I'm not going to go into all the details of when you should add in an oral agent or when you should add in an insulin. The key point to remember is if you're not at goal, you need to think about what is the reason you need to add in another agent? Do they have underlying heart disease? Do they have underlying diabetic nephropathy? is it time for them to go on to a basal insulin and not be afraid of any of those treatment options to treat our patients? The second figure also gives additional information about consideration of adding in a GLP-1 receptor agonist or possibly a basal insulin to help improve the patient's blood glucose and, as I mentioned earlier, help improve their glycemic control. I'm going to now turn over the presentation to my colleague, Dr. Angela Thompson,
2: So now we're at the part of the presentation that we're gonna be discussing the therapeutic inertia as it relates to both the patient and the provider factors and the suggested interventions, including the newer insulin formulations. So therapeutic inertia by definition is the underuse of effective therapies and preventing serious clinical endpoints despite the abundance of evidence showing benefit, including deficits with the lack of screening, risk assessment, preventative measures, attention to adherence barriers, and referrals. The provider-related factors that lead to therapeutic inertia include the overestimation in the quality of the care, the use of soft excuses to avoid intensification, the lack of materials, time, training to appropriately escalate care to meet the recommended targets, This includes complexities of navigating ever-evolving guidelines and the insurance coverage for the treatments prescribed. There are several approaches that have been identified in the literature to address provider inertia, and they include adopting monitoring systems to assess the quality of care as a whole. Through this type of analysis of process and outcome indicators, clinicians can evaluate their own performances, identify critical areas, and adopt suitable strategies in a virtuous quality cycle. Additionally, implementation of software or algorithms that are embedded in the informatics clinical folders to help with this therapeutic decision-making can better stratify patients according to their cardiovascular events, whether they are previous or whether they have risk factors for cardiovascular events. The presence of chronic kidney disease, age, fragilities, et cetera, therefore identifying the most appropriate decision aligned with those current recommendations by the American Diabetes Association and whether these individuals are candidates for new therapies. Ongoing opportunities for education and training to increase the knowledge and also help facilitate behavior modification, including having educational tools and guidelines embedded in an electronic EMR alongside other opportunities for learning such as podcasts, journals, and workshops are helpful. And then there's additional consideration for more frequent visits and enlisting other team members that can assist with the patient education, assist with barrier identification, and even treatment implementation have all been proven solutions to mitigating provider therapeutic inertia. The patient-related factors that contribute to therapeutic inertia are plenty, and they include denial of having the disease, low medication taking adherence, diabetes distress and or depression. There's cost and coverage issues along with fear of hypoglycemia. Oftentimes low literacy and low healthcare literacy are problematic. Competing priorities. If you have patients who have multiple medical conditions that they are trying to manage, including family and work, there's dexterity and visual impairments, especially in our elderly patients, and then certainly social determinants of health have been shown to be significant barriers to not only adherence, but to gaining control of diabetes. And there's a lot of evidence that's shown that these patient related factors are a very strong predictor of therapeutic inertia, far more than provider factors. Therefore, un- understanding these barriers to a patient's willingness, or even to their ability to engage in the treatment pan is essential. To combating patient therapeutic inertia and improving outcomes. Strategies to ally patient-related therapeutic inertia include identifying those barriers that are impacting care so that individualized solutions can be implemented. Also using shared decision-making that involves that patient in the decision Utilization of SMART goals that can help foster behavior change or clinical goals through a structured action plan have been shown to be effective, followed by early implementation of combination anti-hyperglycemic therapy can help patients achieve these glycemic goals much sooner, and also with a reduced burden of multiple medications and co-payments for your patients. And finally, close and consistent follow-up to evaluate not only the efficacy of the current plan, but determine any alterations that are needed is appropriate and strongly encouraged. So we're gonna talk about utilization of insulin in the context of therapeutic inertia. Just what is that connection? Well, with the introduction of these ultra rapid acting insulins. They include insulin Aspart, which is also called Fiasp and lumjev which is also called Lispro AABC. These new generation insulins, they're different from their s- short acting counterparts because they have additives to enhance the absorption, which accelerates the onset to about two to five minutes. And this allows for a lot more flexibility in dosing up to 20 minutes after starting a meal. And clinical studies have demonstrated that these ultra fast acting insulins provide significant reductions in one and two hour postprandial glucose levels, thereby improving the time and range, A1C reductions, matching the physiological secretion of insulin with similar safety in terms of hypoglycemia to fast-acting insulin. And so these characteristics have the potential to improve adherence and to reduce patient-related therapeutic inertia. So we're gonna talk about the first-generation basal insulins in comparison to the ultra-long-acting basal insulin to see how this could impact therapeutic inertia. With these first-generation basal insulins, in particular in pH, It is a very inexpensive insulin so it can certainly be used in those individuals who have cost or coverage issues however it has an increased risk for hypoglycemia as well as a requirement that twice a day dosing be utilized in order to cover 24 hours duration of action additionally it has higher pharmacodynamic variability and intra-individual variability which can cause a lot of differences from one day to the next in the glucose control, and also in the risk for hypoglycemia. This is in comparison to insulin glargine and the biosimilars, as well as insulin detemir, who have a longer duration of action, up to 24 hours, minimal variability, and a lower risk for hypoglycemia when looking at comparison studies. And so having a lower risk for hypoglycemia, having a requirement for daily dosing over twice a day dosing has the potential to improve therapeutic inertia in your patients. So with the second generation basal insulins, also called ultra long acting insulins, they have the potential to improve adherence and to reduce therapeutic inertia in patients more so than even the basal insulin counterparts. There are two ultra-long-acting insulins, and they include U300-Glargine, which is also marketed as Toujeo, as well as insulin Degladec, which is also marketed as Traceba. With U300-Glargine, it's actually the same molecule as U100, but at the higher concentration, it provides a relatively flat or peakless insulin, and so absorption is or delayed, there's a longer duration of action of 36 hours as a result. With Degladec, it's actually a novel accoladed basal insulin. It has a unique mechanism of action. It's a protracted absorption involving the formation of a depot of multi hexamer chains. And so this causes a reversibly bound to, or reversibly binds to serum albumin. That leads to a slower release a longer half-life of 42 hours and a flatter, more stable glucose lowering effect. And these ultra long acting insulins have shown clinically to have even less pharmacodynamic variability and intra individual variability because of these longer duration of actions and just because of the way they're made. Clinical studies comparing long-acting insulins with ultra long-acting insulins have also shown a significant reduction in hypoglycemia and overnight hypoglycemia up towards 40%. Each of these insulins allow for higher dialing capacity for especially those individuals who require more than 80 units per injection, they're ideal. They have a more flexible dosing because of the longer duration of action and they don't have that rebound hyperglycemia often seen with longer acting insulins in their delayed doses. So all of these factors make ultra long acting insulin a very viable option in preventing patient related therapeutic inertia. These are some of the characteristics or specifics about dosing and storage and prescribing that I have listed on the slide. And what I wanted to point out is that the ultra long acting insulin preparations are really unique in the fact that they do have, as I mentioned before, these larger dialing capacities. They can actually dial up to 160 units in a single dose. They also hold larger amounts of insulin, thereby reducing the number of prescriptions that a patient has to obtain in order to be able to maintain control of their diabetes. They have a longer storage life, so that improves adherence if the individual does not have to throw away a pen after 30 days because of the potential loss in potency. These particular ultra long acting insulins have a shelf life of eight weeks after opening. So there are some pretty exciting developments in the field of basal insulins and those are with the emerging treatments of weekly basal insulins. The very first one that is underway in phase three clinical trials and already completed phase two clinical trials is BIF. It is a weekly basal insulin that has already completed studies looking at the feasibility and the safety of a loading dose as well as efficacy and in the titration and conversion from the ultra long acting and the long acting basal insulins to a weekly basal insulin. And the studies have demonstrated that It's just as effective as the ultra long acting and the weekly insulins, but there might be actually a lower risk for nocturnal hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia with these particular agents, as well as a reduced weight gain or less weight gain in comparison to the current long acting insulins available. The other weekly basal insulin that is currently under study is Icodec. Icodec is also completed their phase two clinical trials, which looked at the same loading dose and titration schedule and conversion from long acting insulins to a weekly acting insulin. And I've got some information about that particular basal insulin as far as uh, its pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic uh, characteristics, as well as the um, steady state and glucose lowering effect. So, on this particular slide, I just have a summary of some of the phase two clinical trials looking at loading dose and optimal titration. Um, What I wanted to really summarize with talking about these two weekly basal insulins is the potential for them to improve adherence with our patients because you're not having a daily injection, you're reducing it to a weekly injection. And studies in the past looking at Patient factors related to therapeutic inertia, having very, uh, increased complexity and more frequent dosing, is always been seen as a disadvantage and a barrier. Additionally, if these insulins have the potential to improve or maintain the same clinical goals and, and reach A1C targets with less weight gain and hypoglycemia, that's also going to improve adherence and address one of the, the key patient related factors to therapeutic inertia which is hypoglycemia. And so now I'm going to transition to my colleague, Dr. Rosenthal, for him to discuss case studies.
1: Thank you, Dr. Thompson, for that excellent description of the current basal insulins that we have, some of the future studies uh, looking at newer weekly insulins that are coming out, as well as discussing the points of clinical inertia, uh, a problem that we face as providers in trying to get our patients Uh, to goal and hopefully with these newer insulins these longer acting insulins it'll be a little easier to uh, for our patients to reach their glycemic uh, uh, targets i'd like to go over a few case presentations case presentation one revolves around a 59 year old female who has a history of hypothyroidism obesity and reflux disease and she is referred for poorly controlled type 2 diabetes about three years ago after failing metformin when her A1C was 9.4%, her intern has tried an SGLT2 inhibitor, but she had persistent UTIs, a side effect that's seen in about 10% of patients on this class of drugs, and she stopped it, and her A1C was up to 9.8%. She did not want to take a GLP-1 agonist because she had had some chronic GI disturbances, and her son, who a- actually happens to also have diabetes, reports that she's had some recent polyuria and polydipsia and has lost some weight. So when you're thinking about the next step to improve this patient's glycemic control, which of the following would be best suited for the patient? A, would you check the thyroid levels to ensure adequate replacement? B, would you add in a sulfonylurea? C, would you start basal insulin therapy and encourage frequent sugar checks and adjustments in dosing to reach a fasting sugar in the low 100s and continue the citagliptin? Or D, would you refer to a bariatric surgeon to treat her obesity? This patient clearly has a hemoglobin A1C above goal. Checking thyroid levels would not be beneficial, although it would be helpful to make sure that she was adequately replaced. Uh, It would not help her improvement in her sugars. Adding in the sulfonylurea would not get this patient to goal. And I don't think this patient necessarily needs to go see a, a bariatric surgeon without really working on diet and exercise and trying to get the A1C to where it needs to be. Adding in a basal insulin would be the correct thing to do. There's really no reason to stop a citagliptin product because it has very favorable effects in helping control post-meal sugars. If this doesn't work and you're not getting your patient to where they need to be, you may want to consider consider prandial or rapid-acting insulin at meals to try to get the patient to the correct goal. The next case I'd like to go over uh, is about a 72-year-old gentleman who has a history of type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and gout for the last 18 years. He presents with an A1C of 9.1%, and he admits to avoiding finger stick blood glucose due to discomfort. He says what some patients always say, I know when my sugar's high or low. He's had recent eye surgery for proliferative retinopathy, and reports that when his uncle started insulin, he ended up having a lower extremity amputation the same year. Currently, he's on glomeparide, metformin, and saxagliptin. In addition to educating this patient, which recommendation is the most appropriate? Would you stop the glimepiride to ensure that the patient at least avoids getting low blood sugars? Would you have him go see an educator to get on an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitoring system? Would you go up on his metformin by 50%? Or would you review in the importance of better glycemic control, discuss a basal insulin pen technology, and start eight units at bedtime? This gentleman clearly has some fears about insulin. Uh, a lot of patients feel that if uh, they start on insulin, they may have a bad outcome as related to this gentleman's uncle, when in fact, his uncle probably ended up having a problem with peripheral vascular disease and neuropathy because he didn't get on insulin soon enough. So we need to, get, uh, we need to educate on these type myths and explain that the better glycemic control is important to help preventing some of the complications. Sure, stopping the glimepiride may help avoid some low sugars, but it's not going to get him to goal. And doubling up or increasing the metformin a little bit is not going to be enough to lower an A1C by two to two and a half percent. So starting on a basal insulin, titrating that insulin, consider adding in mealtime insulin if you're not getting the goal would be the appropriate answer. The third case I'd like to go over is is a patient who is 56 years old. This gentleman has a history of type two diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. He had a positive stress test recently, so you basically feel that this. Gentleman has underlying coronary disease, and you see the list of his medications. He has a strong family history of diabetes. In fact, his father died at MI at an early age. This gentleman is overweight. Uh, His pulse is 92. He does have an S4 gallop, gallop, and the rest of his exam is normal. His A1c is clearly not at goal. Neither is his LDL cholesterol. You'd like to see that below 100. To optimize this patient's regimen and reduce his risk, what would be the next most appropriate thing to do? Would you increase his metformin? He's not at goal. He's not at the max dose. Would you also increase his glibiride? Those may help a little bit. However, they're not to the point where you're going to get an A1c to 65 to 7%. Adding in a TZD like piaglitazone is going to cause some more weight gain. Uh, it may uh, help with some other uh, features uh, with the patient, maybe if he has underlying liver disease or fatty liver. But again, a low dose of piaglitazone is not going to lower an A1c by Three or 4% when he's already on several oral agents. Stopping the citagliptin and adding in an oral GLP1 agonist may help some, but again, not getting the patient to goal. So the correct answer here would be D, which would be to start a basal insulin, try to get this patient to goal uh, into the low to, one, low to mid 100 range. And if you're not getting it goal with a basal insulin, think about adding in a mealtime insulin, as a lot of times patients need combination basal bolus uh, insulin to get them to appropriate goal. So in summary today, we've spent a lot of time talking about the epidemiology of diabetes. We've talked about ways to prevent long-term microvascular complications. We've talked about some of the faults we may have as physicians and providers in managing patients due to clinical inertia that was well elucidated by Dr. Thompson. Dr. Thompson also went over several options of treating patients with basal insulins, talked a little bit about the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and making your choice for a basal insulin. And hopefully these case presentations showed you a a method of of thinking about your patients, thinking about their hemoglobin A1c, and and also trying to come up with an option to treat them to get them at goal. So I thank you for your attention today. And I want to also thank Dr. Angela Thompson, uh, our our expert on clinical inertia, uh, as well as insulin products that she discussed today. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Well, thank you so much to both of you, um, Angie and to Rich um, for the the um, presentation, because this is a challenge for all of us in primary care. So let's get straight to the Q&A and um, we've got a number of questions that I don't know if we'll get to all of them. But um, when you add in a basal insulin, how do you decide to decrease or, de- or discontinue even concomitant um, oral agent in their regimen? And let's let's start with Rich.
1: You know, I I think that's a good question. When we add in basal insulins trying to get their A1Cs to goal, uh, you got to remember an insulin may cause hypoglycemia. So I always think about if I am going to withdraw a drug, I think about a drug that may potentiate low blood sugars like a sulfonylurea So if they're on a gliburide or a I at least cut it in half or may even discontinue it. And then as we advance forward, um, uh, we determine if we need to add in other agents because at the end of the day, you wanna make sure your patients aren't getting lows. An occasional high we can treat, but a low is hard to treat.
0: Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. So I've always had some resistance um, with patients to starting or initiating basal insulin therapy. So how do you address that resistance um, to, to initiating that therapy?
1: You know, uh, I'll make one comment. I think Angie probably would like to add a little bit because she does a lot of this in her practice. Um, You know, I I think a lot of it, there is some aversion to that, but a lot of these patients are already checking their fingers and I reassure them that, that, that actually the, the needles on the basal insulins are a lot easier than that than the AccuCheck uh, or the blood glucose on the checking on their finger. So that's how I address it. Angie, how do you look at those issues?
2: Well, I think one of the number one fears that patients have is that they're going to have pain and, and just the, the fear of, of a needle. And so they envision that needle being the same size as what you would give for an immunization. So I, demonstrating the insulin administration in the office and then showing the actual what the needle looks like almost always alleviates that fear and they're ready to to move forward and then I never use it as a punishment I always talk to patients about how diabetes is progressive and that there may come a point in time in their disease process that they're going to need to to start utilizing insulin so they realize early on that, that's just a part of of what's going to happen.
1: The other thing too, is to avoid the myths. I saw one yesterday who I wanted to add in basal insulin. She said, look, you know, when my aunt added in basal insulin, she went on dialysis and it was like, no, she went on dialysis because she didn't add it in early enough. So reassuring that insulin doesn't mean you're going to have a complication is also an appropriate way to to manage it.
0: Agreed. I had the same thing with, Oh, I, I don't want to take blood pressure medicine because when my mother did that, she had a heart attack It's because we didn't start things early enough. So and I think diabetes is the same the progressive um, nature of the beast. So um, how do you. um Well, let's see when you're titrating a basal insulin, when would you make the decision to add in a mealtime insulin um, to control their diabetes? Angie, why don't you do that one?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have I have um, two items that I look at. Uh, first, I look at their total daily dose and compare that to what would be a equivalent weight based dose for a basal insulin and. If you're looking at the ADA guidelines or standards of medical care, the recommendation is once an individual's basal insulin is 0.5 units per kilogram per day that you, and they're still not meeting their A1C goals and having hyperglycemia around mealtimes to consider uh, initiating a a bolus insulin or rapid acting insulin. I think now with um, sensor technology, that's another means of being able to determine whether or not they are still having hyperglycemia postprandially and, uh, you know, basal insulin is really only going to regulate their overnight and in between meals. So if you still see those large peaks and the long duration of peaks occurring around mealtime, then that's an indication that they would need a fast-acting or rapid-acting insulin.
0: Sure. Did this, and another question that has come in is, would the use of ultra-long-acting insulins reduce the need for frequency of finger stick controls, or are you trying to get most of your people on um, CGMs and things like that? Rich, why don't you do that one?
1: Well, I mean, I think the CGM uh, is a good thing. I mean, along the lines of what Angie said. I mean, an ultra long acting is is mainly kind of controlling that fasting and in between meals. Uh, I look at the A one C values a lot because if you know if you're if you're trailing around with an A one C down in the high seven low eight range, it's not that they need more and more basal insulin. A lot of times, their problem may be they need a, a mealtime insulin. You may want to just start that, a fast-acting insulin with their largest meal. And, and I use a rule of thumb that, you know, check your sugar two hours after a meal. And, you know, the goal by the ADA is probably to keep that below 140. That's pretty hard. I mean, we accept up to 180. But if they can check their sugar two hours after a meal, and you're seeing numbers in the, the low to mid 200s, their problem is not the basal insulin. They need a mealtime insulin to bring that down. And again, I go with a very slow process of adding that in and, and not trying to potentiate a low blood sugar.
0: Right, those hypoglycemic events are are such a challenge um, throughout the disease process. So um, I appreciate that greatly. So um, Angie, I know that a lot of our patients struggle with the cost of um, all of this. So if you have someone um, like one of the questions, no insurance, or uh, especially with someone newly diagnosed, what what is your suggestions on those who don't have insurance, or how to treat um, patients um, who have either no insurance or are underinsured um, to get those lower costs?
2: I think there are a couple different options that can be explored. Certainly, utilization of a low cost, intermediate acting insulin. Uh, is an option, which is your NPHs. They're $25 to $30 a vial. There is also a pen option for the the Glargines that I believe now is capped at uh, $99 at Walmart a month. For those who struggle with that cost, you also could employ the pharmaceutical companies. I know Lily started during the pandemic offering, they have a Lily Cares program and they oftentimes cap the insulin cost at about $35 for most individuals who are uninsured as long as they don't have a really high income, but they do base it somewhat on the income. So if there are individuals who um, have a lower income bracket, then they, they oftentimes get it lower or even a little higher if they, they have higher income, but still need help so that's really been a great tool. Although other companies that make insulin also have a patient savings option and again it's income based and so that they can apply for that and oftentimes they will get covered in a matter of of just a few days with the paperwork being sent there.
0: Okay, so the so the response is fairly quick.
2: It is fairly quick. It's okay, typically good. a turnaround time once the applications completed the patient would have to sign a few sections of it the provider would have to document the type of insulin the dosing and and send a, a actual prescription it's typically within a week at, at most sometimes it's shorter than that
0: okay Because that's important too. Um, And then
2: delivery, uh, delivery sometimes is, it depends on the pharmaceutical companies. Some deliver at the provider's office, some now deliver at mm -hmm. home. And And it's it's, it's typically good for a whole year and and you would just reapply at the anniversary of the next.
0: uh, So most of those are shipped directly to the patient or to the provider? It's not something Yeah, it's either have.
2: one or the other. Lily ships directly okay. to the patient. I I still I believe that Santa Fe and Novo uh ship to the providers. To the still. providers.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. With with shipping, that can be a challenge these days. Um which is a challenge for all all of us for, for many things. <laughs> um so um that that, but it's nice to know that those programs are there. And um, I, I think in the ec- economics of healthcare, um, we we just need to be aware of, of what patients can pay for instead of them just walking out of our office knowing that they can't do any of that. And so they'll just have to forgo those treatments, which is sad to me. Um, so I think that it is really important for us to know um, that these um, options are out there for when we have, you know, a therapeutic inertia or we're just not getting anywhere um, and what we do with adding basal insulin and um, mealtime insulins as well. Um, I really appreciate um, each one of you Um or that both of you for doing what you do on a daily basis. Um, it really helps us in primary care do what we do um, in treating p- patients with diabetes. It is um, such a challenge uh, each and every day. And um, I'm also thankful that we've come so far in healthcare with the treatment of diabetes.